On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Uh, fairly varied um, Sunday newspapers today, but I think there's a couple of stories which really dominate, and one of them is the front page uh, on two of today's uh, major Sunday papers. That, of course, is the sex abuse scandal that has emerged this week. Uh, it's connected to the Spirit and Order, the patrons of Blackrock College. The Sunday Independent, first of all, tells us this morning that Gardaí are actively investigating two living spirit and priests over the alleged sexual abuse of children. As the scale of scandal widens this weekend, it has also been confirmed that four people have come forward with fresh complaints about their treatment by members of the organisation. Uh, this weekend, the spirit instead that people in nine countries have now made complaints about 30 of its priests. Cases coming from Australia, Brazil, Canada, France, Guinea, Kenya, Nigeria, Sierra Leone and the United States. In total, the congregation says it has received 233 complaints against 77 priests. 59 of those complaints relate to the Blackrock College campus in Dublin. It's also confirmed that of its surviving priests, two are the subject of live Garda investigations. Uh, more about the Spurtons in the other papers, but just very briefly on the sidebar of the Sunday Independent, uh, we learned that the government is to drop its target of having one million electric vehicles on the road by 2030. As the Green Party leader Eamon Ryan warns that Ireland faces a wartime situation for the next 25 years to stop our planet burning. The Environment and Transport Minister is finalising a new climate action plan which will shift government policy towards delivering more public transport and walking and cycling infrastructure in a bid to reduce overall car journeys. Asked about the target of 1 million EVs, he said, I think a lesser number. It hasn't been finalised yet. That does remind me of when I was at a technical briefing with some officials on the day that the last climate action plan was being published. And I remember asking them, were they going to introduce any kind of financial incentives to try and encourage people to move to an electric vehicle if they didn't already have one? And they said, no, no need, because there'll be a tipping point coming in the next decade where it'll be cheaper to buy a new electric car than a new diesel or petrol car anyway. And I said, that's all well and good if you're only ever buying a new car. But if you're in the used car market, like most people in Ireland are, what are you going to do to encourage them? And there was stony silence from the top table. Lo and behold, years later, they've now decided they don't want to pursue that target of one million vehicles. Although, we might get into this later in the hour, it is worth saying that apparently the trick is not to convert people to electric drivers, but actually rather to just stop people from driving altogether because tyre particles, would you believe, are a big part of uh, emissions in the country. Um, More on the uh, Blackrock College uh, situation on the front page of the Sunday Times this morning. Um, They say that the Gardaí are preparing to investigate more allegations of the sexual and physical abuse of boys sent to fee-paying schools. Amid fears that there has been widespread underreporting of such crimes, according to security sources, four people have lodged fresh complaints with the Guardi last week in relation to abuse allegations in spirit in schools in the wake of a series of harrowing accounts of abuse suffered by schoolboys at Blackrock College in the 70s and 80s. Detectives are trying to establish if those named by the victims are still alive. A Garda spokesman said that four men were being offered uh, were being offered support, but have urged others to come forward. And Garda Shiakana will deal with any matters reported in a sensitive matter and will, where possible, progress matters through investigation. A spokesperson says. Also on the front page of the Sunday Times, uh, you might have almost forgotten about the impact of the HSE cyber attack uh, in May of last year, now eighteen months ago. Um, but we learned that around hundred thousand people whose patient records were stolen in the cyber attack could be aligned for compensation of €3,000 or more. The government is preparing to defend what it fears will be a flood of compensation claims and legal experts believe payouts could reach €150 euro, depending on the nature of the data stolen. Accidental disclosure to third parties of data on children's medical conditions has in the past resulted in payouts of around €3,000. The health service is preparing to inform about 100,000 people that their records were stolen in the ransomware attack by Conti, which was a criminal organisation that targets government departments and private businesses around the world. Conti is now thought to be defunct. It has been accused in the past of acting as a proxy for Russia's intelligence services. The government has ruled out setting up a compensation scheme for those affected on the advice of the Attorney General and instead it plans to defend any actions for damages, according to sources 
course, is familiar with the issue. No one wants to see a repeat of the army deafness claims of bygone years, but there are fears that it might be similar, according to John Mooney today in the Sunday Times. Uh, the front page of the Business Post deals with uh, another big concern, which is the future of um, foreign direct investment into Ireland, particularly in the tech sector. They tell us that Ireland's heavy dependence on FDI has particular repercussions during an economic downturn and could result in job losses on a big scale. Uh, Martin Vermlinger, who is an OCD, OECD researcher, he's the author of a new IDA report on foreign investment in Ireland. He says Ireland is more exposed than other countries to worsening economic conditions due to a heavy reliance on foreign investment. A growing number of IDA-backed firms, including Meta, Twitter, Stripe and Salesforce, have been among those to announce significant job cuts this month and they've put the government's FDI strategy under scrutiny. Also on the front page of the Business Post, Stephen Donnelly tells us that the Business Post's health tapes investigation, which revealed financial dysfunction and distrust within the health system, were in the public interest. But he says he was very uncomfortable with the manner in which the recordings came to light, which makes you wonder then what he thinks of the front page of the Mail on Sunday today. Because they've got more secret recordings, which not alone uh, deal with uh, financial concerns or the concerns about the financial management of the Department of Health and the HSE. But tapes today uh, obtained by the Irish uh, Mail on Sunday lift the lid on how department officials perceive Stephen Donnelly himself and his now Secretary General, Robert Watt. In the recordings provided to the Mail on Sunday via a protected disclosure by the whistleblower Shane Corr, public servants also expressed concern about unsanctioned spending by the then HSE Chief Executive Paul Reid. Uh, and the recordings are, are, are pretty something. I get into them a little bit later but there is just one one little extract that I want to read to you which is um, from somebody um, who has just met the newly appointed minister uh, Stephen Donnelly and this is an extract from the, a recording of them speaking to another colleague uh, in July 13th 2020 this is three weeks after Stephen Donnelly has gotten into the job uh, person X we'll call them uh, I met the minister on Friday I think it was Thursday or Friday person Y how did that go person X hmm he was telling me he wants to run some plans by me laughing uh, person Z, oh my God. Person X, his economic calculations. Uh, and this is this person recounting their conversation with Stephen Donnelly. So apparently we've been counting everything wrong for the last 10 years. He has a new methodology which is robust. And people that he knows have confirmed with him that it's very robust. That he's going to march down to Robert Watt and tell Robert that Robert has been counting the budgets wrong since 2011. Person Y, oh silly you. Uh, person, th- uh, person X sarcastically there's a serious chance he'd come out with a black eye like Robert has lost the plot for a lot of ridiculous things like you know that is a, a little extract of some of the hate, um, health tapes that have been published today in the Irish Mail on Sunday to discuss those and more but not necessarily in that order uh, Valerie Cox journalist and author is with me in studio as is Aideen Finnegan journalist with the Irish Times and the presenter of the How to Pivot podcast uh, good morning to you both um, good morning tough to know where to start uh, with today's papers in fact actually we might just discuss one thing because it is mentioned in the papers not necessarily in huge length but particularly because because there's been some some developments overnight, which is the uh, US um, midterm elections. And we're going to talk to Pauline O'Reilly um, later on about her experience as an election observer. Uh, but Valerie, the fact that the Democrats have now confirmed that they've held uh, the US Senate, they, they went out into this election with 50 seats. They're now going to come back at least with 50 and potentially mm-hmm. with 51. Uh, there's an outside chance that they might just hold on to the House of Representatives, but at the very least, if they are the minority party, it will only be by a very small handful. The very fact that Joe Biden is not a very popular president and yet they might ha- they've hung on to the Senate, they may hang on to the House and three quarters of the American public think that the country is going in the wrong direction. I mean, what does that tell you about the quality of Democratic leadership, but also about the quality of the Republicans trying to challenge them? Well, according to Justin Webb in the Sunday Times, the Democrats are hugging themselves with joy. <laughs> but, I bet they are. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, they're on the verge of retaining the Senate. 
But it, really what everything is focusing now on now is the candidate for 2024. Mm. And as you say, things are swinging very much away from Biden. And the question really is, how does Trump influence what Biden does? Mm. Because, um, you know, they're saying Biden, he was the only man um, who could beat Trump in 2020. Mm. But in 2024, he's the only candidate who could lose. <laughs> so we're wow. expecting this big announcement on mm. Tuesday evening from Trump. Yeah. And everybody is expecting that to say, yes, I'm going to run, you know. Mm. I mean, I don't think you're ever going to stop the man. Um, he just needs this adulation. He needs to be in there. He needs to be spending money. He needs to be fighting with people. And there are, of course, a couple of others coming out of the woodwork. Mm. I mean, particularly Gretchen Whitmer. She's the governor in Michigan. But what's going to happen if Trump doesn't run or if he can't get the nomination? He's going to become an independent and that's going to do a lot do you, of Do you think he would run as an independent that he'd kind oh, of split yes. the ticket that way? He's think not he going to take a no from the party and if he gets a no he's going to run as an independent and he's going to do a great deal of damage to his party mm. and probably hand the election straight into Biden's hands or whoever runs uh, if it's not Biden. I mean people are talking about Biden's age. Yeah. He would be 86 when he comes out next time. Not being ageist, I mean it'd be fine if he was, if he's able to cope with it at that age. That's mm. absolutely grand. But there was a post, uh, a poll done by the Washington Post and it came out that most people would prefer somebody much younger, somebody maybe in their 40s yeah. who would take control of it. So you know, it's, it's, it's really great fun at the moment. I mean, what they're saying is it is an absolute potential bloodbath right now yeah. because we don't know what's going to happen. So you, you gave us the name of Gretchen Whitmer there. So she's the governor of Michigan is it um, Adrian I'd like to think that you know you and I are, are, would, would follow the news quite closely I'm going to be honest until about half an hour ago I'd never heard the name of Gretchen Whitmer No uh, and every I, time I go to say it I go to say Gretchen Wiener from Mean Girls well, there you which go. is yeah, unfortunate like, you know, n- yeah, Not for you Gretchen Wiener uh, <laughs> President Glenn Coco on the way uh, but if you've never heard of Gretchen we- uh, Gretchen uh, nearly the same thing there again Gretchen Whitmer and if you don't know very much about uh, you know other potential frontrunners such as you know Pete Buttigieg who was a, a candidate for the primary last time around and if you don't think that Kamala Harris has been very high profile you do find yourself then very quickly asking well who could the Democrats could, possibly run? And that is the big question because they'd be fools to think that Joe Biden could could run in 2024 even though the uh, Democrats look like that they're holding on to the Senate and possibly the House of Representatives mm. as well. What's really interesting though is so Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan I was listening to some analysis that was basically saying that in states where there was a genuine chance of abortion being outlawed mm. That is where people turned up. So like in New York, actually Republicans did very well because there's really no, there's no threat to democracy. There's no threat that there's a governor in New York who will not certify an election and uh, that abortion will be become unavailable. Mm. And so Republicans did very well in those states. So Gretchen is in Michigan where there was a genuine chance of that happening. We saw by very tight margin go to Arizona uh, uh, overnight. Mm. Uh, now we now they don't even need Georgia's runoff. They don't no. need it to go to Warnock even though they, they do if they want to have some control. Yeah. So it's interesting that these people, I mean it kind of reminded me a little bit of an election we had here a couple of years ago when people were voting for Sinn Féin candidates that they never heard of just because they wanted Sinn Féin into government in 
2020. So you think that's what it was with Joe Biden that they were basically electing a Democrat that they weren't too fond of because they wanted Trump out? It's not It's not even that they wanted that, that candidate to win. It's yeah. where there was an actual possibility that they would there would no longer be abortion rights in that state mm. that that's where people went okay no not, not that's not happening here uh, I think it's it, it's hardly a very uh, a sign of a great flourishing democracy uh, Valerie and maybe it's always been this way and maybe I'm, I'm I'm too young and not hardened or cynical enough but for for people to be making the decisions well a based on once in a generation things like if you are concerned around bodily autonomy or, or abortion or woman's right to choose or a threat to democracy that's not going to be in the ballot necessarily every single time so for people to be voting on the basis of which party they hate least I mean it's, it's hardly a great outlook for a no, flourishing democracy it's, it's not and you know I, I'm a lot older than you and I can remember elections a lot further back but I think at the moment um People are losing that sense of democracy and how it works. I mean, that was evidenced very much by the candidates. I think we had 60 candidates who said they were deniers and they weren't going to obey. Or they weren't going to uphold the result of the election. They were going to go with Trump and say, look, you know, mm. um, this isn't valid. I won. And if you take that to its logical conclusion, I mean, we could go right back. I mean, I think Obama made a statement last week saying, well, sure, I could. I might be still president, you know, mm. um, because nobody's accepting it. And that is very worrying because that actually heralds a breakdown of democracy where people will not abide by the result of an election. And that is very serious. And what we've also got to watch is Trump because he fuels that kind of thing. I mean, we remember the riots um, after the election results came out. That is very damaging. And how do we... Um, tell people that democracy is good, that democracy works. I think America has a big, big job on its hands trying to get across to people that, yes, you can have an election, we can monitor it, we can make sure everybody believes in it. But this kind of thing at the moment where it's up in the air and nobody trusts it is actually very, very dangerous. Uh, Kate has been in touch on Twitter. She already points out that many, many Republicans dislike and are embarrassed by Trump and some voters showed a dislike by either not voting or changing vote to the Democrats. And that, that kind of touches on another point, which is think that there are increasingly fewer um, actual swing voters in the US. It's now more a case of which party can produce a candidate that mobilises their own voters rather than winning over any swing voters. Um, just on, on the point of, of Donald Trump and his prospective announcement on Tuesday, Aideen, um, that obviously was an announcement that was um, put in place or scheduling that was put in train before we knew the outcome of the elections and before a lot of Donald Trump's favourite candidates fell short and a lot of election deniers were defeated in various races across the country. Um, there's hardly any chance that he'd be convinced to, to rethink his plans, would there? I mean, I've heard uh, Jason Miller, who was a previous a senior advisor in his term in the White House, saying that he was counselling Donald Trump to hold off on that announcement or at least wait until the smoke had cleared before saying anything. No, the, I mean, it's definitely he's going to do what he wants to do. I don't think anybody could. And, and the, Actually, there's um, an article in today's Sunday Times by Jackie Goddard in Miami saying that no senior delegation is expected to try to steer him away from conflict. There's no deal to be brokered. It's not possible. A lot of Republicans right now are trying to figure out how can we get him out, make him stop, end this torment. If it's not going to work, we're stuck with him and he's stuck with us and it's going to be a bloodbath. You see, there's a bit of me that wonders out of self-preservation. Would Could you convince the guy to say, listen, it's not worth your while running, that you can always go out, if he does cling to this idea that the election last time was stolen from him, they can always cling to this this perception of moral high ground. I was the righteous man and I'm going to go off into the distance now and I'm going to be this king in exile in Mar-a-Lago and no one will ever be able to challenge me again because I don't have to look down the barrel of getting beaten twice. Yeah, but Gavin, that's you're making that uh, assumption on the basis of Donald Trump being a rational person. Like he's not a rational person, <laughs> objectively. 
you know yeah and she's in trouble no, well, in okay. Doolin at the moment too did you see that I saw that there's a mention of that though the one of his the, the one of the fences are, yeah, are building fences sea barriers. in the sand dunes how are you yeah. without planning permission so he's not going to obey any rules I mean I remember when um, Trump visited Doolin a few years ago yeah. and I mean it was absolutely just disgraceful he got off his plane and we had somebody doing diddly idly yeah. idly on this, a this was before he was uh, the president before this is when he was making a business ran. visit yeah. and ministers Michael going Noonan out meeting him on the runway yeah. and practically down on one knee I mean it was unbelievable what went on but he's in trouble now anyway for the two well, offences he, he did tell us he was going to build a wall uh, maybe just <laughs> in a slightly different well, circumstances well it was supposed <laughs> to be a wall actually because that, that fence was supposed to be a wall Yeah. Uh, then he on board Planolo said you cannot build that wall so then it turned into a fence to okay. get around it and as I understand it some local person saw the fence being built asked the workers what's, th- what's that for and he yeah. said it's to protect the sand dunes and then the objection went in that the sand dunes can't renew themselves if the, the wind can't the get wind. through ah, it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but it's interesting I, I was actually nearly surprised that that happened because I covered the Trump visit in 2019 for News Talk I was down in, in, in Dunebeg and yeah. I could not find anyone. I could find one person who off the record was unhappy with the visit. One person who did not feel secure enough to speak out in opposition for fear of, yeah. you know, how the community might round but, them. But actually, more importantly, you only found one. Just one wow. the whole time. And so I'm surprised that uh, that that there was somebody who was actually willing to, to kind of go on the record mm. and take a complaint against what is seen as a massive provider of jobs in the area and, yeah. and the saviour of it, really. Yeah. Um, before we do move on, because I need to take an ad break in a couple of minutes, but I do want to just discuss for a couple of minutes that, that story that's on the front page of the Sunday Times and the Sunday Independent. And of course, it's discussed at length inside uh, most of today's papers. And that, of course, is uh, what has emerged this week about historical abuse claims uh, against members of the Spirit and Congress. Uh, centred around Blackrock College and other um, institutions run by that order. Um, I, I hate to be in any way dispassionate, uh, Valerie, but th- there's a lot of me that sort of wonders, well, how did it possibly take this long for something like this to emerge, given that there's been yeah. so many scandals over so I'll many years? I'll tell you how it took this long, because we had dozens and dozens of scared little boys who thought that they'd be in trouble if they ever reported it. I mean, that was the thinking back then. Kids didn't have this openness where they had the words even. And that's, there's one very good piece in this where it says, you know, the kids in the 80s, they actually didn't know the words for sexual abuse. Mm. And they were terrified of telling their parents. And you know, a really interesting thing, in the light of all that's happened in the last week with the documentary that came out and yes, the two boys yeah. and so on, a lot of elderly parents are now hearing for the first time about their children being abused in Black Rock or with the Spiritans yeah. um, when they were small children. And I think that's the awful tragedy that these people, a lot older now, are having to come to terms with it and having to say, look, did this happen to you in Black Rock? And, you know, grown men mm. having to relive what happened back then because so many of them you ask you know why this didn't come to the yeah. fore they left school they put it at the back of their minds and mm. they tried to get on with their lives but it was all, it was always there it was never healed it was dangerous and that's what's coming out but now you, you just made one observation there which which maybe might might lead us onto something else that the fact that we didn't have the language around surviving this the people didn't didn't describe this as as sexual abuse at the time because they didn't have any other way to characterize it so they didn't know what to call it then they if didn't. they were and there is descriptions in the papers of, you know, how they were abused and so on. But they didn't actually know what the priest was doing. Mm. And they also had, this was an they interesting thing. They were primary they were so school children. young mm. and they had no idea it was happening to other kids. Even those two little brothers, they had no idea that each one was being targeted by a priest or that other priests were coming in and targeting them. I know
know during the week um, the present day parents of Blackrock College got a letter from the school and I mean the school does seem to be quite exemplary now. Mm. I mean it's this is historic if you like in how the children talked about it or didn't talk about it but they got a letter pointing out basically you know that was then this is now you can trust us and I think a lot of parents do trust BlackRock and trust the Spiritans now but this has got to be dealt with and there's going to be so many more claims now coming out from people who never complained who never made it public who never told their parents about it I mean can you imagine this people who are now in maybe their 40s and 50s who never told their parents what happened to them Mm. and now both generations are going to have to deal with this. Yeah, I think I, I just do think it is worth reflecting just on that point that maybe if people didn't have the language to describe what had happened to them, that it might be a very good reason why they haven't spoken out until now, because there might be some people who will wonder, well, why are you only speaking out now? Sure, haven't we had decades of, of these things and you had plenty of prompts? But it's the fact that we didn't have the vocabulary even to describe it, um, I think is maybe one of the good reasons why people haven't spoken out before now. Um, do stay with us. After the break, we want to discuss uh, one of the other major issues of the week, which is the downfall or the perspective downfall of the tech sector in Ireland whether there's anything we can do about it there's one economist in the business post today who believes that the future of the cent- of that uh, whole area is out of our hands and we'll talk to them after this a couple of texts in about the state of the US uh, Brian says that Trump won in 2016 because a sizable percentage of voters couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton under any circumstance the same would be proven now if Trump were to run in 2024 says Brian somebody else says uniformly leftist democrat loving Irish media blatantly hiding dementia elephant in the room Biden's worsening cognitive decline is shocking uh, says that listener who I suspect to te- text us if it's not you Lara but I suspect that's Lara in Dublin because Lara often reminds us that, that we are uniformly leftist democrat loving Irish media at this hour of a Sunday but thank you for listening Lara nonetheless uh, and somebody who texts in uh, about the situation in Black Rock says they find it disturbing that religious orders still have such a strong hand on running so many schools across the country this needs to stop and the state should not be funding them as a non-Catholic parent I'm concerned by the influence of these organisations in schools says that texter do keep your text coming. As I say, 53106 is the number for your text on the record. NT is our hashtag on Twitter. Now, there's been a lot of discussion this week about the future of the tech sector in Ireland, given that in the last 10 days, we've had a significant number of layoffs being announced at Twitter, at Stripe, at Salesforce and at Meta, the parent company of Facebook, WhatsApp and uh, and Instagram is the other one. Uh, there is a column in today's business post which suggests that, in fact, the future of that sector is completely out of our hands. The column is written by Aidan Regan from the School of Politics and International Relations at U. Um, Aidan is with us on the line. Aidan, thanks for joining us this morning and thanks very much uh, for taking our call. Um, the general outline of your argument, first of all, is that the tech sector managed to benefit uh, in the last 10 years, not because of anything we were doing necessarily, but because of what was going on in the United States. Tell us how. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think the tech sector, like many other sectors in the US and very disruptive uh, risky sectors benefited from the macro financial regime that was made possible by the US Federal Reserve. Okay. So the macro financial regime, does that in short mean the way that it was manufacturing and printing money? Basically the way, yeah, different firms were able to access market mar- markets and what I mean by that is capital markets and the extent to which the US Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank has been buying up financial assets, making it possible for these large investors to basically um, to do this. And when you can't get money from issuing or buying government debt, you look for riskier assets and a large amount of that capital flooded into uh, the big tech sector. So for your listeners, you know, this could be quite complicated, but actually it's quite straightforward. When money is available and it's concentrated in very few hands, you want to get a return and the tech sector is expanding saying, hey, give it to us. That's exact, exactly what happened. And that was made possible really 
in the aftermath of the, the financial crash in 2008-9 by the US Federal Reserve. Okay, so in the aftermath of the financial crash then the US Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States starts manufacturing more money and that money in order to get into the economy has to be channeled towards sectors that are in growth mode and that was tech at the time and therefore then we were the beneficiary of that because if they're expanding, they're expanding across the world, they're likely to land in Ireland but we're benefiting as a result of more dollars being printed in America. Yeah, and as I point out in that article, I would go as far as to say that Ireland's economic recovery, the ultimate cause of Ireland's economic recovery, you know, we, we all know it's about the expansion of foreign direct investment. We all know concretely it was about the expansion of the big tech sector. But the question then is, well, what conditions allowed that sector to expand so quickly at that point in time? And it was very much exactly as you outlined the role of the US Federal Reserve in this process. So Ireland was a net beneficiary of quantitative easing. And okay. because the US did it much earlier than Europe, Ireland also benefited from that much earlier. Now, these companies didn't just suddenly arrive in Ireland. Mm-hmm. They had a bit yeah. of footprint here already. So it was so the ability for them to expand massively benefited Ireland, yes. But so now the US is in the opposite direction now where there's uh, interest rate increase because they're effectively trying to tr- slow down the circulation of money, excuse me, <clears throat> in the American economy and beyond. So if American money was the cause of the growth in the first place, does American contraction then mean that a lot of what's going to happen now is, is out of our hands? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, <laughs> it's a, you know, Ireland is a hyper globalized economy, really open, very dependent on a handful of a few firms. The export sectors are highly concentrated. So when those are doing well, the tech sector, the pharmaceutical sectors, Ireland benefits hugely. But when they begin to contract, obviously Ireland disproportionately loses out. So it's too early to say. We don't know what's going to happen. It's very uncertain. But yes, I would argue that exactly if you want to get a, a grip on what's happening in the Irish economy, looking at the US is a better way to do it than looking at what's happening internally in Europe in many ways, particularly for these sectors. Does that mean that there's been some failure on Ireland's part to build some kind of bulwark where if these firms uh, arose or, you know, came up and came up with the high tide of American monetary policy that we should have done more to save them then from crumbling when policy went the other way? Yeah, I mean, I, I see there's a lot of that kind of being talked about in the media at the moment. Could the government, the state have done things differently? It's very easy to say that. But, you know, Ireland, it's a bit like a drug. We were so we're so dependent on this. You know, no government is going to turn around and say, hey, guess what? Our corporate tax revenue is booming. Our income tax revenue is booming. We've got all these high paid, high graduate jobs expanding in our city centers. Let's get off this. Let's do something different. The problem, of course, is that this industrial enterprise policy is deeply embedded in the Irish state. It's deeply embedded in the Irish economy. It's been in place for over 50 years and it works and it has been very beneficial. But could we be doing something differently? Yes, absolutely. My own view is, of course, and anybody, everybody's been arguing, we need to focus on smaller enterprises, we need to focus, focus on Irish indigenous companies and develop our domestic tech sector. But in reality, we're not going to get off this foreign direct investment anytime soon. So the question is, are our cities capable of attracting the next wave of investment? And the things that are in the government's control, transport, housing, things, those things are, re- are really what are likely to shape the next wave of investment. And I think that's probably where Ireland is likely to fall down. Uh, I see that there's a big spread elsewhere in the Business Post making the argument that actually if a lot of those workers who have been laid off by big tech in the last uh, couple of weeks if they decide to stay in Ireland that maybe it could be a golden time for startups because a lot of the, the, that talent will now have to find somewhere else to go and it could be great for them but one other question before I let you go Aidan um, we often talk about the country's reliance on corporate tax and I think uh, 10 companies alone account for half of Ireland's corporate tax take and 5 of those 10 are in big tech so is there a real concern that exchequer returns and simply tax income that keeps the country going could be in serious jeopardy here if things go the way that you fear 
Yeah, no, I think this is the much bigger risk, and I, I point this out in the article as well. I think the real existential question here is that effectively, you know, a fifth of the entire revenue that funds the public services and infrastructure of the state come from a handful of multinational firms. And effectively, within that, the big tech sector has a big role to play, particularly companies like Apple and Alphabet and so on and Microsoft. So if all of a sudden they begin to declare less profit here that's taxable, does that mean that the Irish state is going to have a big hole in its budget? And the answer to that question is yes. The problem, though, Gav, is that so much of the, the income that's declared here by these companies is unrelated to their actual activities here. It's unrelated to their workforce. So in most other countries, you could say, oh, well, you're letting 700 people go. God, you're cutting your workforce in half. That surely means that the revenue equivalent is going to drop too. You can't do that in Ireland because so much of this is bound up in the international tax planning and corporate tax avoidance strategies of the big tech sector. So, it's, it's so it even adds another layer of uncertainty then because we can't be absolutely sure how much of the tax revenue is derived from actual activity in Ireland and therefore we just have no way of knowing uh, what exactly. tax is going to look like. Exactly, and this, this uncertainty. And, and fairness, I think the government is very aware of that, and you've seen it in the last budget where they specified this new measure. And again, Ireland is internationally very unusual that we have all these, you know, national account measures with a genie star on top and we have the same now with our budget deficit and our government uh, you know and the government are basically saying that they're going to put aside this for a rainy day fund etc which is the wise thing to do but the bigger question of course is and a question that we've been avoiding in this country since 2008 is well how exactly are we going to fund the type of infrastructure and services we want as a small open economy in northern europe because we want social democratic public services but nobody's willing to pay for it, uh, it it's a fascinating thought experiment that you might have uh, the tech sector providing for a rainy day fund and then the tech sector's departure being that rainy day. Uh, but on that somewhat uh, cerebral note, we'll let you go. Thanks for joining us this morning. Aidan Regan is an Associate Professor at the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. His column about uh, the prospect of the Fed putting the squeeze on Irish tech sectors on page 11 of the Business Post. Um, on that cheery note, let's move to something which is providing an awful lot more cheer, which is the prospect of climate catastrophe uh, coming down our way. Um, there's a lot written across today's papers, but Valerie, you're particularly taken by a piece, um, well, there's plenty across the papers. You're particularly taken, though, about some coverage about the extent of Eamon Ryan's delegation at the COP27 talks in Egypt. A delegation of 55 people all heading off to Egypt which sounds to me to be absolutely crazy. I mean if you look at the numbers there are 30,000 attendees at COP27 and believe it or not um, the number of um, um, fossil fossil fuel executives we'll call them um, would you believe there's 600 of them um, at COP27. I mean, it's a ridiculous situation. Very good article here from Caroline O'Doherty in The Independent. And she has a very interesting angle on this. She said they call it the plane pause, the eight to ten seconds when the roars of low flying aircraft passing directly overhead become so loud that the speaker must stop and wait for it to pass. And she says at COP27, depending on the time of day, planes press pause as uh, every, sometimes every 10 minutes and you have to count to 10 till that plane is gone. So, I mean, I think she thinks... So basically you can't even interview someone on the side of the street, basically, because you can't hear them You can't even the hear the speaker, for goodness sake. It's quite ridiculous. So she's saying, you know, there's a lot of talk. It seems to be a lot of talk um, on the issues that benchmark the progress of the gathering. Um, have we reduced greenhouse gas emissions? No. Have we agreed to stop using fossil fuels? No. Have we found a way to fairly finance the transformation required? No, 
So basically, very little has happened. It seems to be all talk. The people we want to be there aren't there at the right time or aren't there at all. And these delegations, huge numbers. I mean, Mm. 30,000. But that includes people like students from colleges, um, you know, young people who, who want change. But they're not the people who are actually going to make the decisions. And I think what we needed there was a very, very slimmed down COP27 with people who could make decisions, a bit like the G20 group. And I think that would have been far more successful. Um, Aideen, I'm just still trying actually to count the number of people from the Irish government who attended COP26 in Glasgow. So while I continue to, to do my sums here, have you any thoughts on whether it's appropriate for 55 people to be making long haul travel for that kind of thing? I mean, this is always going to be the argument. Should they're flying there? How climate friendly is that? And I think people get tied up in that superficial sort of chatter. I mean... <sighs> You could have driven to to Glasgow, but you might also have. <laughs> mm. We we are a society. We are a globe that is built on fossil fuels at the moment, and everything comes back to energy, as we now know, because of the war in Ukraine and uh, this uh, this need to expedite the move to renewables. I think people just get very caught up in in the whole co- in the COP thing because really the argument we make commitments countries will make commitments and then we'll come home and sectors will say no I'm not doing that no I'm not doing that and we just get caught up and it nearly turns into a culture war then and it's mm. just so non-conducive to actually making a change I, I would absolutely ban fossil fuel executives I mean that's a kind uh, uh, term for lobbyists why are they there they're there to kind of argue the point well we still need a transition fuel and all the rest of well, it you, you could also if you're being charitable you could also argue that they need to be part of the room because you can't just eliminate them or work, work around them or can't just pretend that they're going to stop existing tomorrow morning Indeed. so it, it's a little bit almost like this is a crude analogy but it's the one that comes to the top of my head if you want to have some sort of solution that everybody buys into it's a little bit like back in Good Friday where you needed to bring paramilitaries and their representatives into the room because there would be no peace unless you knew that they were on board. Yeah, I guess the thing is these are for-profit organisations and if we have to try and use as little fossil fuels as possible that's going to mean no profits for them and they're just not going to allow that to happen. Mm. Uh, I've managed to do my sums on the provisional list of participants for COP26 was in Glasgow last year and uh, admittedly it was a shorter hop because it was only Glasgow but it still involved air travel for a lot of people. Uh, There were 87 or 88 people accredited to the Irish delegation as part of COP26. Is it actually really, to me, that it almost seems like it's more proportionate that you would st- you would only have 55. I know 55 is a big number. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not even talking about the cost of the flights. Yeah. I think it's crazy that we have that number because they're not all people making decisions. In fact, I'd very much like to see a list of who exactly went and what role mm. they play. Well, I'll give you the list for last year's delegates okay. when we're off air so you can sort of see. But actually, just to maybe give you a sense of, of who does go. Um, last year, for example, the, these are all listed in alphabetical order. So this is in no particular order. But the jobs held by the people that attended last year. Assistant Secretary for Climate at the Department of the Environment. Uh, Assistant Principal for International Climate at the Department of the Environment. The Minister for the Environment, that's Eamon Ryan. The Minister of State at the Department of Foreign Affairs, that was Colin Brophy. The Minister for Foreign Affairs, that was Simon Coveney. Uh, I suddenly realise that I'm going through a lot of ministers here. Uh, but if I just skip back through the ministers. Assistant Secretary at the Department of the Taoiseach. Former Director of Chogosk. Deputy Head of Mission and Consular for Foreign Policy at the Department of Foreign Affairs. Chief Inspector at the Department of Agriculture. Private Secretary to a Minister. Advisor to a Minister. Government Press Secretary legal advisor to the Department of the Environment uh, counsellor to the DFA on succumbent from the Department of Agriculture when you start to look at these people's job titles you can make a credible case for all of yeah, them actually being you there can, well you can make a credible case certainly for some of them yeah um, I, you know I think they should be there but the, the important thing is that when they come back um, 
we're going to make we're going to have to make decisions and they are not going to be there pushing those decisions I mean what's going to happen is people like the fossil fuel executives will come and say oh we can't be doing that we can't be doing that and you end up with this sort of least common denominator this bland situation I mean after the last um, the, the last event in Glasgow mm. we should have been making changes then and it's so slow I mean we're still talking we've about we've introduced carbon budgets belching. though and we, we've you know we, we've, we've at least figured out what each sector is required to do so but that's have we changed have we done anything major I don't think so well maybe not if we're dropping our targets for, for electric vehicles um, Aideen to try and end this part on a cheery <laughs> note I see you've got page 10 of the Sunday Times open yes. in front of you which is the headline of what to expect in Ireland if climate change escalates yeah this is an article by John Mooney who kind of looks at the, the scenarios he talks about floods and rising sea levels economic and industry and societal shocks and security and political instability now he talks about heat diseases and plagues biodiversity loss so there's lots of things that I guess people aren't linking to uh, climate change because we are seeing these things by the way I came in here in a blazer I'd normally be in a wool coat at this mm, time of year yeah. I'm it's 16 degrees in Dublin and I'm looking at Christmas decorations and I want to enjoy it but it's just so bananas I yeah. can't there's a piece in one of today's papers about the deep sea swimmers uh, at the 40 foot I think yeah. it's in the Sunday Times and they're a little bit unnerved at how mild the water yeah, is yeah. in the middle it, of November it is unnerving and we should be unnerved by it but what I just find really interesting is that this is stuff that's happening now but I guess people haven't linked it like floods and rising sea levels I mean we have people who in Roscommon when the Shannon floods you know, it's going to happen more and more often. And are people not linking that? And, mm. and you know, if the infrastructure isn't there to protect people, that's that's another it's thing. Biblical, really. <laughs> you know, he's talking about stuff that's kind of doomsday, but a lot of it is happening already. And the other thing is security and political instability, which I think is really goes um, ignored. The fact that people are going to come here as asylum seekers and refugees. Yeah. And, and it is because of the devastation. The Horn of Africa is a perfect example. And the kind of how the far right will seize on that as as a source of conflict within Ireland. And we are we are seeing accommodation centres being burnt down for, for that were supposed to house Ukrainians. I mean, it's just I just think mm. this stuff is already on our doorstep. It's uh- not in the future uh, a text about climate from Owen who identifies himself as one small human uh, while I agree that it's consistently disappointing why do people think that they will have to agree to stop using fossil fuels I think we need to get real and have reasonable expectations individuals have a huge part to play not just big tech and corporations that is from Owen uh, and a couple of other texts about uh, BlackRock and what's been uncovered there in the last few days let's not remove ourselves from the reality that the abuse of BlackRock and elsewhere was committed not just by the Catholic Church but by our brothers our uncles our sisters our aunts God only knows how deep the abuse, shame and guilt is. That's from Brian. And somebody else says that status as a religious organisation should be removed as the people who run BlackRock and the Catholic Church in general clearly have not acted as a charitable organisation, says that texter. Somebody in West Cork who describes themselves as a realist texts in to say that he thinks we're missing the point. COP27 is designed so that nothing changes. It's all about optics. No country wants to sacrifice anything or pay compensation. 30,000 people attending creates confusion and interference. It looks like they mean business. The few who genuinely want major change have no power, which is why there has been no progress, says that texter. And uh, I misidentified one of our earlier texters. I suggested that it was Lara from Dublin who had been texting in to complain about the uh, Irish media's politically correct think bubble. Uh, the same texter has texted in to say that it wasn't Lara in Dublin. They haven't given us their name, uh, but they have said they've wondered whether any of us have the bottle to say that Biden needs to be in a nursing home before a state visit. Um I don't know whether, he's, well, whether, whether we or anyone else is qualified to say that Joe Biden, that the, the duly elected president of the United States, needs to be in a nursing home before a state visit. Well, I don't think we said it about Donald Trump either, to be fair. But, um, Valerie, you're, 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 you're shaking your head there. I am. 
I'm shaking my head because it's very ageist and there's lots of older people who are well able to do their job. Now I draw the line at people who can't do their job of course but I mean there's 20 year olds 30 year olds in this world and I wouldn't trust them to take my dog for a walk. <laughs> you know it all depends on the person. Now in Biden's case I don't think he's able to do the job. That's a personal opinion. But in general terms, mm. I think it's ridiculous for us to tie people's jobs to their age. It should be to their health, to their cognitivity, to what they're able to do. And, you know, we've had enough out of older states people in this country who've done a very good job. I mean, Michael D. Higgins, for example, um, you might be divided on Eamon de Valera, but there's lots of older people in both business and politics and the arts who have done extremely good jobs and we'd never turn around and say, oh, they're too old for that. So, you know, we have to just be conscious of the ageism thing. Uh, going back to COP27 and one person who probably would have liked to be there but isn't, that is uh, Charles III and uh, he is, of course, the son of Prince Philip uh, who was a famous uh, conservationist uh, and environmentalist in his own right. Uh, we learn on page six today of the Sunday Times, Aideen, uh, I think you were looking at this a few minutes ago, uh, he has come some concerns as many members of the royal family seem to do rather he had concerns of course um, about what was being portrayed in The Crown which as we all know is a work of fiction because you know we've all we're all working our way through season 5 at the moment we all know that it's a work of fiction Prince Philip was concerned that we wouldn't all realise that it was all a work of fiction and he yeah. was con- contemplating legal action Well I think I think some people do understand it's a work of fiction but it is hard to tell sometimes which bits have been dramatised for like there's some really obvious ones the, the one that sticks out for me is the episode of the first series when it's about the fog in London and the amount of people who die in Winston yeah. Churchill having this sort of moment where he realised how devastating it was when his secretary was was affected mm. by it. Um, like, it's kind of obvious that that is yeah. dramatised, mm. you know, but I suppose with other things... I don't think Winston things, Churchill became some sort of, like, post-wartime <laughs> environmentalist because of the smog in London. Indeed. So this uh, apparently revolves around an episode in season two uh, about the death of Princess Cecily, who was Prince Philip's sister. And it was suggested in the, in the, in the show that it was down to to Prince Philip but the, I won't get into the okay. reasons it takes too long to explain yeah. it but Prince Philip was Okay so it, it suggested this person died long story short as part of a plane crash that they didn't have to take yes. but for some decision that Philip made yes. and he's a bit upset by that and he's upset by that and or was upset rather Yeah, was upset yeah. indeed I guess why wouldn't you be upset by that you know if you felt it wasn't true and it, I mean it, it's acknowledged that it isn't true I think we need a podcast to go with the crown to actually because you have to sit there with Wikipedia open to kind of sometimes go did that actually happen <laughs> I think so yeah, there is a book. Actually, there mm. is. But it is sometimes the mad things you're like, well, that's not true. And you Google it and it is. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> it, but it, it is upsetting, I'd say, for the, the modern. Like, I'm quite keen to see the new series because I lived through that yes, and that tabloid yeah. frenzy around Princess Diana and then her death in 1997. Uh, I can understand that it's just too close for, for members of the royal family. That's you know, what Prince William said. It's getting too close and that he feels very uncomfortable with it. But I mean, I think the nerve of Prince Philip, I know he's gone now, uh, but, you know, the entire royal family is a work of fiction, really. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, but is there, to a certain degree, is there kind of very modern privilege that like if William wasn't all that bothered about like uh, fictional storylines involving his real world um, antecedents, but he's bothered about something that involves him or portrays him and his mother? 
Like, well, why is he not as exercised about previous things that, you know, relate to the institution yeah, that he's going exactly. to be charged with holding? And why hasn't he followed Harry and, you know, skipped the country or whatever? Um, he's grown up with this. I mean, it really is anachronistic at this stage. The royal family, and King Charles has said that. He said he wants to slim it down, he wants to change it. And, you know, to have somebody like Prince Philip saying, oh, I don't like this, don't like that. I mean, that is an interpretation of what happened with his sister. It's quite ridiculous. He mm. wasn't to blame. But it is an interpretation of it. And if they're going to live their lives on the stage as almost a making up family you know um, we know about well we know about all the tensions within the family mm. we know family escapes everything and if they're going to provide the blueprint for this series well that's their problem well they apparently quite liked the first two series because it dealt with a past that they were like oh very good you know and it was further further furthest away that yeah. they could kind of admire it or you know understand it a bit well, better that, that, that's a, just proof positive of hypocrisy then because if they if they didn't care that much about some historical inaccuracies because they thought that it was a good job of like you know humanising these people and they were prepared to like take the good over the bad then what they're complaining now the same thing happens Charles comes out quite well of season 5 I think no spoilers there Interesting. but like um, that, but they, they they're concerned about the inaccuracies only when it concerns them yeah like, get but over they're yourself. so far removed from real life I mean I've been watching the latest series and there's a clip on the Royal Yacht Britannia yeah. where they're travelling around with all their friends and Charles is saying we'll go and see this room and we'll see that room yeah. and Diana says well actually I'd like to go shopping and all her friends there's about eight of them on the thing and they won't Charles says okay hands up who wants to go shopping and nobody puts up their hand then the two little boys uh, William and Harry put up their hands and say we want to go shopping (laughs) mummy you know I am Spartacus if you're on a, a royal yacht and you have to ask can you go shopping it's, it's terribly trivial. If you've ever been on a royal yacht and you've wanted to go shopping, <laughs> do let us know. 53106 at a cost of 30 cents on the record. NT is our hashtag. Uh, I have to let you go. Thank you both very much for coming in this morning for a deep dive of the Sunday papers. Valerie Cox, journalist and author, and Aideen Finnegan, a journalist with the Irish Times, and the presenter of the excellent How to Pivot podcast, which you can find anywhere you get your audio online. On the record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PWC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.